Are your school days out of sight? When you took English, art, and math, what's your favorite Fahrenheit? How sour are the grapes of wrath? Do you need a challenger for discussing Salinger? Do you love the written word? What happened to the mockingbird? Our show is just beginning, so find a place to sit. These questions will be on the test. It's time for sophomore lit. Welcome back to Sophomore Lit, where we reread your 10th grade reading list. I'm your host, John McCoy, and with me is returning co-host Tamar Avishai. Hi. Hi. It's been a while. It has. Uh, a lot of life has happened, but uh, fortunately, a lot of reading, too. So, Would you uh, remind everyone out there who you are and where they might hear you? Sure. Um, I am the creator and host of an art history podcast called The Lonely Palette. And the goal of the podcast is to make art history as accessible as possible. So I think people usually hear that phrase and they think dusty and snooty and art museums that feel intimidating. And the goal of the podcast is to make it very clear that Art is for you. Artists are you. <laughs> and uh, and that they're responding to the world around them. And honestly, in the last couple of years, that's been an easier sell because I think I think everybody has experienced a large global moment together. And I, I think it makes a lot of that art just feel more accessible because because people have like been through something. And so, um, you know, looking at Picasso's Guernica <laughs> might have a little bit more resonance now. So, so that's the aim of the podcast is just to to make art feel present. I uh, asked you back on the show, and I asked specifically if we might do uh, a, a book about art, and this is the one we chose together: uh, <laughs> the picture of Dorian Gray <sighs> by Oscar Wilde uh, from. The, the original story published in 1890, the novel published in 1891. Um, do you have any history with this book before uh, reading it this time? I had never read it before. And of course, I'd heard of it. And I, I knew in really broad strokes that it was something about a painting and aging and and that it was dark. But that's it. And boy, I'll tell you, this book gave me the goosies. I, I wasn't <laughs> expecting to be actually so, um, so moved by the writing and by the actual plot. Yeah. If you are familiar with Wilde, mostly from his little aphorisms and quips, or if you've, um, if you know of the importance of being earnest, you, you probably think of Wilde as a very light and, and silly guy who, uh, <laughs> who's, purpose is just to spout out these witty aphorisms about how nothing in life matters and that art is the only thing that matters. Um, and you get some of that in this book too, but, but it does become a kind of a gothic horror as it goes along. Yeah. Well, actually, in fact, all I knew of Oscar Wilde was the importance of being earnest because uh, in high school, <laughs> I was Lady Bracknell oh. in a high school production of it. And so I was really familiar with with exactly those kinds of, you know, kind of comedy of manners, aphorisms, you know, just and and at the beginning of this book, I was like, oh, God, it's just going to be that over and over and over again, because Lord Henry talks and everything is like, oh, people are only this, of course, they're, they're actually the opposite they're that. And it's like, that's the Oscar Wilde um, formula. It's like, say something and then it's opposite. And I was a little turned off at the beginning. I just thought like, I can't, you know, it's one thing to hear this in a play. I don't think I can, I can handle a novel that is all of this. And then when the plot started to pick up, I, I was, uh, schooled. Well, so you said that, uh, that you, that you were horrified by the ending and, and that you listened to it first as a, as a reading, right? Yeah. I, li I uh, got the audiobook from the library and I, I'm actually really glad I did because this has been a new discovery for me. I mean, welcome to the 21st century, but uh, I have just started actually listening to books as audiobooks because I've got two little kids. I've got, you know, I'm, I just have so much more time when I'm cooking dinner and unloading the dishwasher than I ever do to actually sit down with a book. And it's a really different experience to 
hear every word as opposed to what your eye does on the page, which it will, it, it, I, I kind of feel like my eye had been like, okay, you know where this is going and just kind of slide to the end of the paragraph. Like that's what I feel like reading on my phone has, has turned my eye into. And so to hear it recited like a play, um, and the reader of course is, is, you know, painfully British, but he was still able to, you know, kind of give each, each character their own distinct voice and their own distinct personality and to catch every word and have it be spoken in the way that, you know, like kind of with the intent that somebody speaking it would have, it really makes the whole story leap off the page. Um, so then I bought the book and I've been kind of making my way through it. And, and now a lot more of the prose is, is catching my eye, but I'm really glad I heard the story read to me. I find, uh, as I'm getting older and reading more things online, yeah. my patience is, is, <sighs> is wearing thin and it is useful to do some things once in a while where you force yourself to, to read the, the entire, uh, page or to hear the entire page. And, and when it's read aloud, that does sit you down and it, you're not, you're not going to go ahead. You're not going to, you, you're going to take it at the pace that it comes. Yeah. And there's like a whole chapter that just talks about like Dorian's <laughs> like perfumes, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's something that I'm sure I would have just glazed over if I was reading it, but listening to it, I was like, it, it you know, you could, you could really also, I mean, I, I know I just said this about the, about reading the prose, but you can appreciate how beautifully written it is. You know, there are, there were turns of phrase that just kind of stopped me in my tracks. And in my kind of Googling a little bit, just to see what, what the world says about this book, which is of course, you know, endless. Um, I saw it described as the greatest novel of all time. Hmm. <laughs> and I wasn't expecting to see that, but, but thinking about it, you know, in terms of just, of just the quality of the writing and the plot, it's definitely up there. It's a book about aesthetics mm -hmm. and it, wild uh, was a member of the Victorian aestheticism movement, a movement that tried to establish that art did not need to be moral. In fact, it should not be moral. It mm -hmm. is supposed to be about its own beauty and that's enough. And the, and that that's, and, and in some ways that aesthetic movement was yet one more reaction against uh, industrialization, against mm -hmm. the idea that everything in the world had to have purpose and utility, and a rejection of the Victorian ideals that morality and ethics were another form of science that was going to be proven by the uh, you know the superior uh, military and intellectual might of uh, Victorian England um, and yet it's also a book about warning against living your life purely for aesthetics mm-hmm mm -hmm. yeah no I was gonna say that 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 um, contradiction throughout the book, I was trying because, you know, as I was, as I was listening to it, I was thinking, okay, you know, ultimately <laughs> I'm reading this so that we can talk about it. And I was trying to pull out, you know, okay, so where does he come down on the side of, of art? You know, what does he believe? What does Wilde believe that art is? Is it, is it true? Is it an imitation? Um, does it reveal the artist? Does it reveal the subject? All of that. And like, I couldn't get a handle on it because he doesn't seem to know himself. It feels like art is both showing the truth of something and purely imitation, depending on which character is talking. And not, no character has any kind of moral high ground, actually, except the artist, it seems like it kind of feels like he's the hero, but he also is, you know, the victim. So I don't know. I mean, am I missing the point? Like, what does Wilde think about 
art. <laughs> I think it's. I think it, you're absolutely right. It's very slippery. I think that yeah. there is a dichotomy that's set up very early on with between um, the, the painter Basil, uh, who's the one who oh, pi- paints poor, the, the poor titular. Basil. Uh, sorry, poor Basil. Poor Basil. <laughs> yes, he paints the titular uh, picture of Dorian Gray. And then there's Lord Henry, who Ugh. is the corrupting uh, element on um, on on Dorian Gray, and Henry seems to believe that life, art, and life are are a lie, and that all you, and that the importance is that we we live a life of the senses, that we live a life. Uh, a, a, a kind of a hedonistic, but more maybe more of an Epicurean life—a life in which p- the pleasures of the senses are really all that matters. Uh, you know, Wilde has an, an introduction to this book where he says, "Art doesn't have to be moral," and then he writes a very <laughs> moral <Yeah>. book. Um, <laughs> so funny you should you should mention the introduction. So when I was listening to this, I I popped it on at the beginning of a road trip and I was really tired and I was like, okay, this, (laughs) this audiobook is only seven hours long. I can, I can knock this out. Um, and of course I, I ended up spending a lot more time on it. Um, but when I started listening to the preface, I, I couldn't believe, like I couldn't, like I was too tired to wrap my mind around how many like boom 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 like everything that art is that the artist is the artist is the creator of beautiful things to reveal and conceal is uh to reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim i mean just going through it and i I didn't realize that it was just an introduction it wasn't really what the entire book was going to (laughs) be um but it was like all of a sudden i felt um like it was just tying my brain in knots how many statements were being made about art and they were all contradictory and they were all true it is an interesting book to to look at as a treatise on the purpose of art i was impressed this time reading it through that wild has the bona fides, uh, you know, when he, at the beginning, Lord Henry is talking about how Dorian Gray will inspire a new form of art in him. And he has this line, he says, unconsciously, he defines for me the lines of a fresh school, a school that is to have in it all the passion of the romantic spirit, all the perfection of the spirit that is Greek, the harmony (laughs) of soul and body, how much that is. We in our madness have separated the two and have invented a realism that is vulgar. What Wilde is talking about here is the Apollonian-Dionysian divide that <laughs> runs through art history. Like it goes back to what Winkleman, and it, it was popularized by Nietzsche. This this idea that there are these two major ways that art works, either in this <laughs> classical idea that's associated with the Greeks, or in this romantic passionate way that's associated with with rome um and and i i was first of all uh, i was thinking like wow wild actually kind of knows what the the the, the debate is uh and he's also going to get a knock in on, on realism as he you know which is <laughs> which is as a as an i as a concept is fairly recent you know it's more of a literary concept at this time well and and in art too i mean i uh, it was in it was in France that that realism in the 1850s really started to uh, set the path for where avant-garde art was going to go, and the importance of capturing life as it was being lived. And and uh, Courbet was in the 1850s was really kind of the um, you know the the first of the warts and all unvarnished truth kind of artists. And then of course you get to Manet and, and you start seeing, you know, prostitutes and classical poses and people knew exactly who she was and what that said about their society. And, and, you know, from there, the ball is rolling to get to basically all the modern art that, that, (laughs) you know, I hate to say this, but like matters. Um, 
And so it is interesting to kind of to see uh, realism treated this way when, again, as you say, you know, what is the moral of this story? Because I came away from it thinking, <laughs> thinking, first and foremost, I don't want to get old. <laughs> It doesn't sound like a lot of fun in <laughs> in Lord Henry's estimation. Um, but it's so obviously, you know, Lord Henry is so obviously the real villain of the story. So you have to wonder. I mean, I, I appreciate that that we are given the opportunity to see to see in real time how wrong Lord Henry is, you know, how much Dorian suffers. And I think that that really speaks to even, even the most, you know, Algernon <laughs> from The Importance of Being Earnest, you know, even the aesthete that we all kind of assume that Oscar Wilde is, you know, he's that character in his stories. Um, there's still an incredible amount of introspection in there, and he's able to write that for the audience. This shows a lot of the 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 depth of Wilde. People who know mm -hmm. who know again the importance of being earnest, or think of him as a this guy who ran in theatrical circles and was invited to parties to see how how what the next funny line he was going to say would be. Um, He's he was a he was also a devoutly religious man. In addition to being homosexual, in addition to writing some of the most um, weepy children's stories you could ever read, the 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 selfish giant used to I, I used to just sob over that story. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's interesting you talk about uh, how reading this makes you not want to grow older because uh, of course this is the story of uh, a man who wishes that he won't change but that his portrait will take on all of the age and the cares of his life and um, which is which is of course an inversion of what paintings in real life do paintings mm -hmm. in real life capture capture a moment that will never come again yeah, I love the line early on when when he says that he's jealous of the portrait for being a month younger than he is. <laughs> I thought that was an incredibly succinct <laughs> encapsulation of the book. But in addition, in addition to getting older, the the portrait is becoming more monstrous and cruel mm -hmm. because it's taking on the burdens of uh, Dorian Gray's sins, and I find it. A little bit odd that aging and the corruption that comes from from uh, being a bad person are sort of uh, mixed together here. You know, <laughs> presumably, if Doyen Gray were a a righteous good person, he would still age. Yeah. Well, and I, what I meant more was just that, you know, when you read through Lord Henry's descriptions of what happens when you get older, God forbid, you know, like that, it was so beautifully written that it kind of <laughs> it was like a, a hand, you know, over my throat. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are beautiful portraits of older people. You know, you don't have to be beautiful to be a beautiful portrait. And I'm thinking about about some of Rembrandt's portraits of both his self portraits of him of himself as an old man, but also he did this this beautiful uh, painting that the Museum of Fine Arts Boston has that I actually did a, a podcast episode on um, of a, an older woman who he admired. He was 26 when he painted it, and it's it's delicate and soft and and respectful, you know, as, as it should be, you know, for somebody who is older, who admires. Um, but of course with Dorian, you know, his challenge is to, is to keep anybody from finding out his secret. And, and I think that that's where the painting starts to absorb his monstrousness. Um, I mean, the age 
is like the you kind of wonder <laughs> if if he if it was a painting and he hadn't i mean i think you you just said this if if he hadn't committed those acts in order to keep his secret and it had just been a painting of an old man um you know it might have been a beautiful old man but that's just not the kind of guy dorian seems to be well, Dorian begins this um, book as kind of a himbo in that he <laughs> is this, uh, he's this gorgeous young man who doesn't seem to have a, 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 an opinion in his body. He doesn't seem mm -hmm. to have any, any original thought in his body. He's just willing to soak up whatever comes his way. And that's either going to be Basil or it's going to be Henry. Um and there's a kind of a fight for Dorian's soul there, I guess, at, at the beginning. And they're both in love with him because of how beautiful he is. Right. They're both very much in love with him. This is a very homoerotic book. And it's a, homoero <laughs> it's a very specific kind of homoeroticism, which is this um, the, 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 the love between a young man and an older man, where the older man wants to give the young man his experience and the young man is eager to be initiated into the, the world. Yeah, a friend of mine asked me <laughs> if there was anything like sexy in the book. And I was like, not in the text, but in the subtext. <laughs> you know, no, no straight man has ever described another man's beauty like that. It is also worth pointing out that the the few women in this book are not uh, dealt <laughs> with kindly, I think, yeah. by, by Wilde. Uh, there's, there's, there is a kind of a casual misogyny that goes through this book and there is there are also some very uh shocking incidences of, of casual anti-semitism in, in the uh, book. yeah <laughs> so, so 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 you know if you're going to read this book as a modern reader you gotta like say huh eh, well yeah you know speaking though of of the women in this book um i actually have have this open to um the so of course sybil vane um, Dorian's fiance, uh, who this is an interesting, you know, this both kind of mirrors Dorian's, you know, as you described the, the fight for his soul and art in a really interesting way. So, so Dorian is so excited to introduce his new paramour to his friends, to Henry. And I'm not sure if Basil ends up going to the theater too, but, um, Sybil Vane is described as this unbelievable actress and uh, she is proposed to by her Prince Charming by Dorian, you know, this love of her life. And then she goes on stage and that happens to be the performance that Lord Henry comes to. And apparently she sucks. Like she gets on stage and she just, she's, you know, the, <laughs> the, the descriptions of her bad acting are amazing. Um, and then uh, she ultimately says to Dorian, you know, now that I know real love, I don't have to fake it anymore and I'll never have to fake it again. And so I'm, I'm happy to be a bad actress for the rest of my life. And of course, this turns him off and, and he casts her aside and then she ends up killing herself. And spoiler. Um, but uh, you have... Um, let me see if I can find the line. Um, so Dorian is basically apologizing for her and saying she is uh, she's just a mediocre actress. And Lord Henry says, or no, who says it? Sorry, you can cut this. Um, and then basically a, a, a kind of a mutual friend says, don't talk like that about anyone that you love, Dorian. Love is a more wonderful thing than art. And of course, freaking Lord Henry has to pipe up and say, no, they're both imitation. They're both simply forms of imitation. Um, and I, I was struck by that, actually, because I felt like her desire for truth, for realism, if it hurts her art, then she is so quickly cast aside. And of course, we're, we're meant to think that 
that because Dorian did this to her and the effect that it had on her and the fact that she takes her own life after that, you know, clearly Dorian is is kind of the villain there. But it's an interesting take on this art as as realism, art as as imitation. Um I don't know. I, I thought that that in that way, Sybil served a really interesting purpose. Yeah. When when Dorian dumps Sybil because he doesn't respect her as an artist anymore, uh, that that felt crushingly real to the way that <laughs> you always think about like um, guys who who dump their girlfriends because they don't share their taste in music or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, and the idea of someone that you love watching you and having to apologize to uh, you know to their friends for you. I mean, it that was a very cringy moment. You were saying that it's interesting that it's Sybil's uh, attempts at 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 creating something real that are, are are failing here because we were talking earlier on about what Wilde says the purpose of art is to be whether it's to to reveal something true about the world or whether it's to lie to us in a beautiful way about the world or it doesn't have to have any actual relationship to the world at all the instigating part of this book is the fact that basil is so struck with dorian's beauty that he feels like he's pouring something hidden and secret and mystical into the painting and the, the the painting is becoming something true about the reality of of Dorian Gray and that's what causes this mystical link between the two of them and that would su suggest that art exists for mimesis for for representation it does have a utility to it um but, but but it turns out that that utility is terrible. It it, it causes all this this pain and, and anguish for Dorian. Yeah. Well, and and he talks about uh, Basel talks about how much of himself he puts into the painting. You know that it's his love for Dorian that this is him seeing Dorian through his own kind of lovesick eyes. That is what makes this such a fine painting, because nobody questions that this is a, a great work of art. Um, and it's not Dorian himself. It's this painting of Dorian. And that is painted by someone. And I, I always love it when artists, um, you know, they're painting, they paint somebody, but really they're painting self-portraits. You know, and and not just me, everybody loves those kinds of paintings. I mean, this is why Van Gogh is Van Gogh. This is why Frida Kahlo is so extraordinary, because even when they are painting paintings of other people, they are painting their self-portrait. And you are always seeing somebody through the eyes of their own emotional relationship with them. Um, you know, everybody loves a portrait like that, <laughs> where you feel like the artist deeply cares about the subject. Um, so I, I felt, you know, I mean, it's, it, it makes the, it makes, uh, Basil's demise <laughs> all the more tragic because this painting would not have mattered as much had he not poured so much of his own feeling into it. After Sybil kills her, herself. There is also this moment where Dorian wants to. Uh, Dorian had had intended to make things right with Sybil. Of course, he didn't do it in time. And there's this moment where he could possibly come through this a a changed man, but instead he decides to throw himself uh, completely into. A life of, of of sensualism, partly because uh, Henry sends some unnamed French book to him. Uh, <laughs> I, I, Henry, I, I, I find this hilarious though because I, I keep wondering what book is this? What, 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 there must be something like uh, that that Wild has in mind. Um, mm -hmm. I, I do like the fact that um, Dorian likes this book so much that he has it bound in several different colors. Uh, so he has a, a book for each one of his moods. Up till the, the middle 18th century, 
books were sold as loose pages and people would just bind them. You would mm -hmm. get them and you'd bind them. That's why if you see like a first edition of um, Jane Austen, there are a few of them out there, but none of them have the same covers because they were just whoever got them, bound them a different way. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and I, I love that about the, the history of books. And I, I'm just bringing it up for no re other reason other than to, to let you in on this uh, if, if, you, if you didn't know about <laughs> Um, yeah, actually, so, so that moment after when he chooses to just give himself over to, to the bad, you know, when he knows he is now a person whose, whose eternal beauty is his only value. Um, I was, I think part of what kind of got under my skin more than maybe, you know, a, a, 19th century novel might have is that I, I found myself thinking a lot about Jesse in Breaking Bad. Mm. Did you, have you watched Breaking yes, Bad? Yes. Yes. Yeah. After he, uh, spoiler, uh, kills Gail at the end of season three. And you have this series of episodes at the beginning of season four, where you just watch him. He can never be alone. You know, he has like, you just know he has this like ringing in his head. He has the like the gunshot in his head. And so he just keeps a party going at his house. This rager that starts out as kind of like a party of dudes and then devolves into this like this like flop house drug den. And it's really disturbing. And there was something about the way that uh, Wild writes about going to kind of the, the bad parts of London and what happens when you get in your handsome <laughs> and you pay to go to the parts of the, the city that, you know, ordinarily people of his class would never go and the descriptions of it and the darkness of it. And that's where the, the gothic goosebumps started to come, um, where you're not only, uh, being brought into the the physical darkness that he is is you know the kind of the griminess of London, but you're really getting into the darkness inside Dorian where he realizes you know I mean I I think the assumption is that he'll he'll never die otherwise right, um, and so he just has to live with with her death with Basil's death with the the friend he he had to bribe not bribe uh he blackmailed to to you know kind of do the breaking bad thing with the body you know like that kind of dissolving <laughs> you know however this this guy got rid of basil's body um that's exactly what i pictured was breaking bad was was you know kind of comes in with the with the barrel and it's really disturbing man like i it it's amazing to me how Wilde was able to articulate a story that that in Breaking Bad feels so modern, but it's modern in the book, too, because of how how deeply you get into the soul of this person who can't go there in himself anymore. Hmm. When he's turning himself over to this life of, of hedonism, which is sort of like in the middle of the book, um, around chapter eleven, there's a there's a, a this chapter in which it's sort of like with one thing and another eighteen years past uh, kind <laughs> of chapter. And what's funny to me is that Wilde goes through several paragraphs enumerating the various interests with which um, Dorian occupies himself and they're and 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 they're very strange you would think that you know for someone who, who was going to be like oh he's going to get into opium he's going to go to prostitutes mm -hmm. he's going to get into like street fights or something instead the things that they list are he first becomes interested in mysticism mm -hmm. and then he becomes interested in perfumes yeah well yeah so that was the chapter <laughs> <laughs> and then he de devotes himself entirely to music and then to the study of uh, jewels. What a scoundrel. <laughs> and then he turns his attention to embroideries and tapestries. <laughs> and finally, at the end, he has a special passion for ecclesiastical investments. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know what to make of this. It's, it's sort of like some of these things 
seem like yeah what who wouldn't be interested in this and other than <laughs> seem like that's a very peculiar and very specific interest but i don't see why it's an uh, a, a a corrupting influence i suppose the the one thing that i come away with from this is that wild does not like dilettantes yeah well exactly i mean i wonder if it's because it's so trivial not not all of it you know obviously that there's there's good deep stuff with the you know the mysticism whatever but the the perfumes the way that that his image was all he had you know that he walks into a room and and how he smells and how he's perceived by others um you know, going back to what you said about how Dorian really is as flat, a, not a character, but a person um, as, uh, you know, he doesn't have a thought in his head. And I, I don't think he ever, you know, he does kind of make the ultimate sacrifice when he's kind of, you know, telltale hearted <laughs> at the end, you know, when he just can't take it anymore. But the idea that that he is committed now to only being beautiful and it's becoming suspicious why, you know, that after 18 years, he hasn't aged a day, you know, people are starting to talk. And so he has to, if I remember this correctly, he kind of has to meet new people, right? Right. He, he can't just be with the same people over and over because they, they're going to figure it out or, you know, I mean, maybe not it, but you know, they're going to question why he doesn't age. And so he has to continually reinvent the mirrors around him that are the only thing that create his identity is how he looks to others. When he meets Basil again, and Basil is talking about, you know, why have you changed so much and why are people avoiding you? One of the things that Basil brings up is, in addition to uh, members of high society walking out of the room when he when Dorian enters, the fact that so many of the young men with whom uh, Dorian has been associating have uh, come to bad ends, including one who apparently committed suicide. And... I find I find this very sad, you know, because I feel like yes, Wilde is trying to show that uh, Doyen is becoming a corrupting influence in in his own. But part of what makes me sad is this: this shows that kind of internalized homophobia that Wilde had to deal with. The idea that, you know, of course it would be ruinous for uh, for a man to be with another man and, and that it's going to only end in insanity or uh, suicide. And I, I, I just made me feel like, oh, I, I wanted to reach out and give uh, Oscar a, a hug a or hug. something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I... The, the character of Dorian is really sad. And I, it also brought to mind, um, forgive all my pop culture references, but um, I mean, of course, the movie Death Becomes Her. Oh, sure. Yes. <laughs> um, which, of course, is, you know, it's a comedy, but it's a horror film. This idea that if you're trying to hold on to eternal youth, you know, what happens at the end where you have these bodies that are just, you know, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn are, are holding each other together practically with like spray paint and duct tape. And these are their bodies forever. And in the meantime, uh, the Bruce Willis character who chose to die gracefully, age gracefully and die gracefully, the, the eulogy at the end, you know, that these two like, you know, freaking hags are, <laughs> you know, attending in the back of the church. But you hear the, the eulogy about how he will live on forever and his children and his grandchildren. And, you know, and of course, that's the moral of the story. But it's also really scary. I mean, that that really freaked me out as a kid. The idea that um, it never mind the the body's breaking down, which I don't think would necessarily have happened in, in Dorian's particular, you know, kind of sorcery, like whatever is keeping him young, but that you will continually lose people that you can't, you can no longer exist in the world because you will always have to reinvent yourself 
over and over and over again forever. Um, that's a, a deeply sad commentary on putting so much energy into choosing not to age gracefully and not just physically, you know, but, but intellectually, emotionally, what happens when you, when you don't allow yourself to kind of continually move through the world that along with everyone else, you know, as your opinions change, as your politics change, as your experiences change, as you grow wisdom, um, you know, wisdom comes with some, some lines and wrinkles and gray hairs, but, um, yeah, I, I, I felt that that actually tapped into exactly what, what in the movie had freaked me out too. Also in this book was that, you know, he just, he, he retreats from society because of this, you know, this affliction now of this eternal youth and beauty and just, it's disturbing. That's, that's a really, really great observation you make about, it's not just physical mor mor mortality that we're talking about here, but it's the inability to, to grow to grow up, to grow on, mm -hmm. to grow on. And, you know, mortality, um, links all of us humans together, but that belonging to a cohort is, is part of what gives our lives shapes and shape and meaning. And that's why it's so, so sad and embarrassing when you have a friend who keeps wanting to dress like they're back in college and keeps mm -hmm. wanting to, you know, I, I, you know, I, what do I know? I'm a, I'm a grown man who, who, who loves comic books, but, uh, well, but, but like, but like take, take your kids, you right. know, I mean, I, I now have a toddler and I have a baby, so I'm not quite there yet, but it's like, I would not see. It's like, if I, I imagine having a teenager would open my eyes to the fact that I, I really wasn't one anymore. And for, for the good and bad reasons, you know, thank God, like, thank God I'm not a teenager anymore, but you really do see how far you've come when you see somebody going through those, you know, fads and mistakes and watching their brains grow and form and their opinions. And, you know, you know, they have opinions that they're going to age out of, but they have it now and they believe it with everything they've got. And so did you when you were that age. We, we, we wind down, of course, at the end, as you, as you mentioned, um, Dorian, uh, goes a little crazy with, when, when, uh, Basil is, uh, he, he's worried that Basil's going to look at the the painting um which has been hidden upstairs in a nursery which is also kind of um freaky freaky yeah it it, it points to the fact that Dorian is never going to have children mm -hmm. when i re i remembered the story i thought it was the attic but the, putting it in a nursery is even creepier <laughs> uh and and then there's a this character who's brought up as just sort of a deus ex machina for body removal who mm -hmm. <laughs> as you say breaking bads it from what i know about um chemistry it it takes a while to break down a body and it takes a lot of uh acid to break down a body so um yeah and it, he kills himself too yeah he kills right? himself too yeah. yes Ugh, so sorry. there's a lot of there's a lot of deaths um and uh and at the very end, it seems for a while like Dorian thinks I'm going to uh, I'm going to be safe. You know, he thinks, oh, OK, they can't pin anything on me. But of course, then um, the the brother shows up. The... Mm -hmm. Well, actually, wait, I just had a I just had an insight um, because this whole again, going back to this idea of of is art the imitation or is art the greater truth um this character that comes in and I, his name escapes me but you know who comes in to basically dispose of basil's body and he's being blackmailed by dorian his name is alan alan, alan campbell alan good old alan um you know he uh he is a, a doctor right or a medical student and he's brought in by Dorian with the kind of expectation that like, look, it's just a body. You do this all the time. And and he ends up killing himself because there is a real difference between 
dissecting and disposing of a body when you're in medical school and when you're helping cover up a murder. And there's, again, that kind of, uh, you know, that projection of what is what is the intention behind the same act? And is it imitating life? Is it life itself? I, I kind of wonder if there might be something there, too, that this is the exact same act. You know, this is this is Alan kind of doing his art. But when he's doing it in in this in the reality of this moment, he sees it for what it is. Well, intentionality is definitely important uh, in this book. There is late in the book a part where Dorian decides he's not going to corrupt this young girl he's been seeing. You know, he's not going to consummate and, and then cast off this young girl. He's going to break things off before they get physical. And he's very proud of himself for that. And he says, surely my picture will, will reflect this, this noble <laughs> deed that I did. And when he looks at it, it's, it's worse still. And the, <laughs> and he comes to the conclusion that what is happening is because he did a good deed out of self-interest it, it it's still a, a sin as far as the painting's concerned yeah i imagine that painting by the end to look like um the francis bacon portrait of the pope mm. you know that one yes i do that's know that one. like yes. all streaky and and his face is kind of in this like horrible grimace like it's well it, well, it is interesting that you bring up paintings because there is actually a very famous portrait of Dorian Gray that was by Ivan Albright um, in the uh, Chicago Art Institute. It was painted for um, the f a movie that was produced in the 1940s. I've never seen it, but I have seen the, the painting. Apparently, it was hugely sensational when the Art Institute brought it in because everyone knew the painting from the movie, and so mm -hmm. people were apparently lined up around the blo block. If you know Ivan Albright, uh, you kind of know what to expect with this. Oh, I don't. I'll, I'll look it up. So, so I take it this was... Uh end of the movie painting not beginning no there was a there was a separate painting that was um by someone else who i don't know and and that got sold recently i think at, at auction no do do look it up uh like okay. ivan albright's painting of, of dorian gray and then go the next time you're on the art institute do go see it it's a uh, it's it's worth seeing okay i'll brace myself <laughs> are you googling it now <laughs> uh, well, should I? Okay. Yeah, sure, no, actually, I'll, I'll look it up in real time. Okay. Um, Ivan Albright. Okay. Ivan Albright, the picture of Dorian Gray. Let's see. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I have seen this. Jesus. Yeah. God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not going to sleep tonight. Okay. So. Well, we, you know, maybe maybe look up the other painting and see what that looked like. Um, you know, this is not going to end well for Dorian. The whole the whole, and, and and it doesn't. Um, do is there anything you want to t talk about with the ending, or are you ready to kind of move on to wrapping up your thoughts on this? I mean, you know. It, it's funny. He, so in kind of rereading, I, I was able to reread about half of it before this conversation after listening to it all the way through. And I forgot that at the beginning, um, he or one of them, Basil or Lord Henry or Dorian, I think it's Dorian, threatens to destroy the painting early on because he's so jealous of of his own beauty um or he's doing it in order to kind of like kill off the the lord henry devil on his shoulder either way you know it's the same knife it's the it's the chekhov's knife that makes its way through the whole book and uh and so it was interesting kind of seeing the groundwork laid out for what would have happened if the painting had been destroyed at the beginning 
and what would that that kind of iconoclastic destruction of art have done to free the characters uh even early on you know because obviously when it's destroyed at the end you know this frees dorian of of his pain but it also kills him and so you know it but it, it would have also had this kind of impact, this kind of poignancy, had it been destroyed even at the beginning of the book. Um, and so I, I, you know, it's kind of seeing that that, like I was reminded that that happened at the beginning. And I thought that was actually a, a pretty beautiful device. Um, so, but yeah, his, his death at the end was, was also, you know, even after this character is just a monster, it's pitiful to imagine this this old man, you know, dead on the floor and this beautiful painting. And people are going to look at that and think, you know, oh, what a beautiful, you know, young man he must have been. I mean, ugh, it's it's really sad. It's sad and it's it's deep. And I wasn't expecting that from, you know, this comedy of manners turned gothic horror like the that the soul that runs under it is is really um i don't know i i guess poignant is is the only word i can think of well i now you're making me feel guilty for having you read this book um <laughs> no i'm so grateful <laughs> i'm so glad well, next time we'll read uh the agony and the ecstasy or something like that <laughs> no i mean look it's it's a book about art but it's really a book about the the subject matter in in art you know i mean i i think that i think that art is kind of framing uh you know a much deeper dive into these characters but it does keep coming up as you know as lord henry is always kind of trying to to you know make sense of of surfaces and that makes sense. He's a, you know, he's an English dandy and, and, you know, surfaces are all he has, but then you get to the character of Dorian and surfaces really is all he has. And, you know, it's, it, it's amazing to see a writer like Oscar Wilde, whose finger was so on the pulse of his moment that he's able to differentiate those two kinds of shallow people. Thanks again to co-host Tamar Avishai. Her podcast is The Lonely Palette. Sophomore Lit is brought to you by The Incomparable Network. Find more funny, smart podcasts online at theincomparable.com. You can write the show at sophomore.literature at gmail.com. Or you can join the discussion on either the Sophomore Lit Facebook page or the Incomparable Membership Slack. I'm just giving it a, a very quick because I, I just tagged a bunch of pages. Oh, yeah. And then I haven't had the chance to actually, like, write out the lines. Oh, that's okay. Don't um, worry. Don't worry. We, we, this is not being recorded in real time. If you, yeah. need, if you need a second or, you know, a minute to look something up, I will just edit that out. Uh, when, okay. When so it yeah, will sound yeah. like you're, will sound absolutely brilliant. Uh, that's <laughs>